0: This text is from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, and verses 4 through 25. Please follow along as I read the passage aloud for us. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he, searched, when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. This is God's word.
1: It would be a mistake if, um, if we try to wiggle out of this passage by thinking, uh, oh, this was uh, written to uh, Israel and it's all about the temple. It really has nothing to do with uh, a church today. It has nothing to do with Christianity. It has nothing to do with Jesus getting angry at the religious leaders for doing the religious leader stuff like he always does in Mark and kind of dismiss it as like Jesus... You know, just doing his thing with, uh, with the religious leaders, and it has nothing to do with us today. Um, we can't really wiggle out of that for a couple reasons. First, uh, the book of Mark is a book about discipleship to Jesus. So when you're reading Mark, any part of Mark you're reading, it has something to tell us about following what it means to follow Jesus. This is why Mark plays with this idea of sight all the time. Um, those who see Jesus, those who don't see Jesus, those who follow Jesus after they are That They they were blinded, but they were made to see, and they followed Jesus on the way. All of this stuff, like, teaches us what it means to follow Jesus. And so when we're in this chapter, this chapter is about following Jesus. And probably the most explicit way to get there is as you carry along in reading the New Testament, um, our bodies are called the temple of the Holy Spirit. Like, we become like little mini temples that house the presence of God. And not just that, when we gather together as a church, or churches uh, together make up and they come together and like living stones, we become and we, we are built into a uh, like a new temple, a place where God is. And so what we, we see in this text this morning has a lot to say to the church and to us individually. Now, I will admit this is a very strange text though. It's strange because it records the last miracle that Jesus does in the book of Mark. And it's not like a healing or an exorcism, which Mark's gospel is full of healings and exorcisms since like chapter one. The very last miracle of Jesus in Mark is a curse. The final miracle of Jesus doesn't bring life. It brings death. Jesus kills an innocent fig tree. Fig tree is just existing, just is. And he goes up to the tree and he curses it. And the next day they go to it and 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 it's dead. Even the the way that Mark writes his gospel, it was like the disciples saw it. Like, oh, and we, we heard him say it. We heard him say he cursed the fig tree. We heard him do that. And the next day it was dead. Now, many commentators have had some serious problems with this text. Because they're like, what is Jesus doing here? This is like, is this like... Uh, transference transmission like he's he's mad at one thing but he gets mad at another thing it's like kicking the dog not that i would condone that but it's like i'm not i'm not really mad at the dog but i'm mad at you know work but i'm gonna kick the dog is that what's kind of going on here jesus is mad at the religious leaders but he's cursing this fig tree other commentators are confused by it but i believe that today's text gives us a unique glimpse into what jesus desires for his church what he desires for you and I, we actually see his passion coming out, his even a bit of anger coming out. And so what I'd like to do this morning is look at this chapter through a specific phrase used in this chapter, a phrase I've been pondering and uh, meditating on uh, as I've been studying this chapter, and it's, it's this phrase. It's found in verse 12. It's this phrase, Jesus was hungry. I think we can look at this whole chapter through this phrase, Jesus was hungry, so let's pray and ponder this uh, phrase together. Jesus, uh, would you today do what you um, do so well in your church? You, you, you can speak to things that I cannot speak to. You can speak to um, people's hearts and where they're at and all their history as they walk into this room. And that you could, um, you could do things in our, in our, uh, our bodies and our minds and through your presence that uh, no, no human on earth can do. And so we give you... Um, an openness. We want to be open to you, God. So would you lead us and teach us today? And just like, um, just like you're about to do the things that, in our life that needs to get kind of like shaken up and upended, to wake us up, show us your passion for us, Lord. Show us even sometimes your, your anger at the things that uh, your church does that just makes you so st- angry, Because we too are your church, and we represent you, God, to the world. And we get it wrong a lot of the times. So may judgment even start in the house of God. Teach us and lead us, we pray by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So what was Jesus hungry for in this passage? What was he hungry for? Well, in the Gospels, hunger is not just about hunger. Hunger is about a lot more than hunger. One example of this might be in John chapter five in John's Gospel. When, after Jesus speaks to um, the woman at the well, if you remember that, that passage, Jesus speaks to the woman at the well, and then when he's done speaking, it says that his disciples rejoin Jesus. They, like, they were out getting food, and they come back, and they're like, Jesus, you, you haven't eaten anything for a while. You need to eat something. And Jesus says this really cryptic thing. Jesus says, I have food to eat that you know nothing of, which is really creepy, because, I mean, what would you think if I said that? If you, you and I went to lunch, I'm like, oh, I'm good. You're like are you going to eat? your hunger hungry? Like, I have food to eat that you know nothing of. <laughs> You're like, is, is Jesus packing snacks? Does he have, you know, like goldfish? Like, what's happening? Like, what, what, do, you, what do you mean? Then he, he has to explain this, because I think Jesus realizes how weird that sounds. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to finish his work. See, food isn't just about food, and hunger here isn't just about hunger. Food here has to do with faithfulness to God, completing God's work and God's will. It's about a hunger that goes way beyond food and fulfillment that is deeper than what food can provide. So food just doesn't mean food here, which is exactly what Jesus Jesus promises later on in John chapter six when he says, I am the bread of life. Jesus says this, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Now this hunger too has deeper meaning than stomach pangs than hunger pangs. It's about our deepest longings to be known and to know the divine. That hunger that drives all of us to do all sorts of things. What Jesus is saying is that hunger is really for God. This is what Augustine was talking about when he wrote about like restlessness, that we're restless until we find our rest in God. It's what really all of our passion projects are really about. It's this need and desire to be one with, the, with God, with the, the divine. Jesus is saying here, That he provides the bread for that hunger. But it's not, it's it's different, it's a different kind of bread and it's a different kind of hunger. One last one is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, during the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hunger and thirst, Jesus here is talking about a desire for righteousness, a passion, a longing for righteousness, not a physical hunger that is satisfied by like a sandwich. A longing that no food in the world can reach. It's a desire to see justice and righteousness in the world to hunger and to thirst for it. Now, we still use these metaphors to speak about desire today. One such metaphor can be found in and around social media when, we, when someone says someone is thirsty. We don't mean that they want, like water or a cold beverage. What do we mean? They're desperate. That person's thirsty. They want attention. They're thirsty for likes. They're thirsty for followers. They're, th- they're thirsty for whatever. So it's, a, it's the same sort, like, we know that like, thirsty doesn't mean thirsty. It means thirsty. And the same way, hunger. Hunger here's the same way. Jesus is hungry. Now, in Mark, it says that Jesus was hungry. Now, he was hungry because it was probably morning and he was hungry. He was human. But his hunger was about more than food. This hunger that Jesus had was about desire. It was about Longing, And what was this longing that Jesus had, this desire that Jesus had? It was about the desire for his brothers and sisters to do God's will, to complete the work God had given them to do. And by them, I mean Israel. Luke's rendering or, or, or kind of like retelling of this same story sheds a little bit more light on this. Luke, when he tells the story of the triumphal entry that when Jesus comes in on a donkey, Um, into Jerusalem, and he goes into the temple. Um, Luke tells that same story, but he adds adds something here. In Luke chapter 19, he says, as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, Jesus wept over the city. He, he, He saw Jerusalem, and he started weeping, and he said, if you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Again, that whole sight thing that's all over the Gospels. It's hidden from... What Jesus is saying is that like, if you, Israel, if you lived into what you were supposed to be and supposed to do and you knew that Messiah was coming, the one, the the, the promised one is finally here. If you just knew, but you don't know. They didn't know, they were blind. Now this might be um, a leap for some of you, but stay with me. Israel was always the plan. God saving the world through Israel was always the hope. From Genesis chapter three, when everything that God had desired and cre- how God created the world in unity and shalom and integration, when disintegration hit the world, when sin kind of like broke open, there, uh, one scholar calls it the vandalism of shalom. When that happened, the plan was from Genesis then Genesis chapter twelve on was to redeem and save the world through Israel. When God called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and said, I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing to the nations. I'm going to bless you to be a blessing. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you my presence so that you can can show this to the world. The very, very, very smart, intelligent uh, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says this. Jesus believed... That the creator God had purpose from the beginning to address and deal with the problems within his creation through Israel. Israel was not just to be an example of a nation under God. Israel was to be the means through which the world would be saved. And that this would be accomplished through Israel's history reaching a great moment of climax. In which Israel herself would be saved from her enemies. And through which the creator God, the covenant God, would at last bring his love and justice and mercy and truth to bear on the whole world, bringing renewal and healing to all creation. This is the longing that Jesus had that the intention of the people of Israel would reach its fulfillment, that Israel would be all that God had set them apart to be, that the temple would be everything that God had set the temple apart to be. Now you might be thinking, well, okay, that's cool, but why did he get angry at a fig tree? Why was he yelling? And cursing a fig tree. Well, in Old Testament literature, both historic and prophetic literature, and in the contemporary writings in Jesus' day, um, a fig tree was a symbol of Israel, specifically of the temple in the middle of Israel and all the temple meant to the world. The symbol of the temple was a fig tree. Now, for example, in the Garden of Eden, imagine the Garden of Eden again, if you've if you know if you've ever read Genesis chapter 1 through 3. The Garden of Eden is uh, where the, the story of the temple actually starts. Because, you know, the Garden of Eden was a temple. The, the, the garden was a sanctuary. It was a place where the presence of God dwelt. What, what is the temple? It's where God dwells among his people. What was the garden? The place where God dwelt. It was with, God was with his people, and he had fellowship with them. And then they had fellowship with him. And and the language is they walk with God in the cool of the day. There's this, like, beautiful picture of fellowship with God. And the intention was to spread this sanctuary, the shalom and integration in this garden, this garden sanctuary, this garden temple, all over the world. Be fruitful and multiply. Take this all over the world. So the world is filled with the glory of God. But that didn't happen. After humanity's rebellion to God in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, it says, they realized they were naked, and how did they cover themselves up with, remember, fig, fig leaves. Yeah, fig leaves. Now, these fig leaves became symbolic of the temple, and the reason why is, um, they believe, well, the reason why historians believe this is, is because the only tree named in the garden was the fig tree. Was there were trees, but they weren't named. They were, you know, tree of life, that I don't know what that is. There's a tree of knowledge, but no one knows what that is. But the only tree that we know of is the fig tree. The fig tree was there because they they covered themselves up with it. So the fig tree represented like the temple where God was with his people, and it became known as a, a symbol of the temple. So when Jesus gets when Jesus gets hungry and he goes goes to look for fruit on a fig tree, this is not just about a fig tree. Are you with me? It's about the temple. It's about the purpose of the temple, the fruit of the temple, and the significance of the temple. Now, we know this, and we know this is a rhetorical device used by Mark. It's called, um, the, the rhetorical device is called a sandwich, um, which is really smart. Um, it's basically when you have, so, you, have a, you have something happening in the middle, and that middle section explains the, the, the bread, basically. So you have a fig tree, then you have the temple, then you have the fig tree again. To get understanding on why the fig tree, you have to just look at the middle part, which is the temple part. And this is what it says there. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out all those who were buying and selling in the temple courts. This temple court was the, kind of like the, the, called the court of the Gentiles. It was the outer court. It was as far in as the Gentiles were allowed to go in the temple. And that's where they set up shop. This is where they did all the buying and selling. He said he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Basically, he stopped all the sacrificial system that day by throwing over tables in the courts. Now, this is quite a scene. And this is, and you might say, this is quite, you know, this is uncharacteristic of Jesus. Jesus is passionately turning over tables. Now, imagine someone at a farmer's market that starts to freak out about the injustice of the whole farming system, okay? And he's, they start to flip over tables. You can't really do this in a store because everything's bolted down in a store. But a farmer's market, there's just, yeah, you could do this. Don't, I wouldn't do it. But just, you could do it in a farmer's market. You start flipping over. You're so angry about the injustice of the farming system. You're like, start throwing over. I mean, you get money and turnips everywhere and purple cat, like every, this is, this, this is the scene, now, this, remember, Jesus' hunger was about desire. It was about passion, his longing. He wanted to see Israel live into their vocation. The reason why he's angry is because they weren't living into their vocation. What was their vocation? What was the, the purpose, the meaning, the telos of the temple? It was to be a light to the world. It's language that you might um, be familiar with if you've been in the church for a while, Jesus calls the church this. It's to be a light to the world. The temple was a place where the nations had access to get near God and pray to God, to commune with God. I mean, the temple housed the very presence of God. If you wanted to go near God, you would go to the temple in Jerusalem. This is why so many people were there at the time. It was like a pilgrimage. Pil- p- pilgrims from all over the world were there. They were there to get near to God. But what does Jesus find when he enters the temple courts? He enters the temple courts, which is, like I said, the the place available for non-Jews to worship. It was like, as far as the Gentiles were allowed to go in, this was um, a place of not, not prayer, but a place of busyness and business and activity. But there was no depth. There was no light. There was no prayer. There was no communion with God. So Jesus, quite passionately, starts to overthrow tables and drive out money changers. Jesus knows what God intends for the temple, what God meant when he said he wanted his house to be a house of prayer for all nations. He looks around and sees the activity. He sees the sacrifices and the money, and it all looks like there's life, but it's actually dead. There's no prayer. There's no communion. And what is prayer? Prayer is communion with God. What was the temple supposed to be? It was supposed to be the place where you met with God. Charles Spurgeon, the famous preacher from a few generations ago, says true prayer is an approach of the soul by the spirit of God to the throne of God. It's not the utterance of words. It's not the alone, the feeling of desires, but it's the advance of the desires to God. The spiritual approach of our nature toward the Lord our God. The true, true prayer is neither mere mental exercise nor vocal performance. It is far deeper than that. It is a spiritual commerce with the creator of heaven and earth. It is a spiritual commerce between the creator of heaven and earth. Now, there was a different kind of commerce going on when Jesus was in the temple courts. Now, now back to Jesus' hunger for a second and the fig tree. When Jesus goes to eat from the tree he sees that there's, nothing, there's no fruit there. There's no, there's no fruit. He goes to eat fruit from this fig tree and there's no fruit there. When Jesus curses this fig tree for not having anything to eat, Mark adds this very interesting comment. He says, it was not the season for figs. And you're like, why did Jesus go to a tree expecting figs when it wasn't fig season? Now, you might think that's kind of unfair. How can you curse a tree for being dormant during winter? The thing is, it wasn't winter. It was Passover. It was spring. And after each winter, a fig tree would begin to bud these little, these little blossoms, these little green knobs, and, and these like little morsels, and they were edible. And by summer, they would ripen into a full-blown ripe fig, but they would start as these green, like nodules on the branches, and they were edible. And so when Jesus walks up to this fig tree and sees that it's full of leaves, anyone who knew figs and fig trees would think, "Well, there's a ton of those little knob morsels on this tree, and I can't wait to eat them." But as he approaches, there was nothing. Though the tree looked from a distance to have life and the promise of fruit, it was lying. And he curses the tree because though it looks like it has life and growth and fruit and activity and busyness, it doesn't. It's really dead inside. And not to put too, too fine of a point on it, the fig tree is the temple in Jerusalem. It had a reason for its existence. It was to offer shade and fruit to the world. The gift of God's presence to the world. But it had not lived into its mission And not just that, in the middle of this scene, Jesus starts starts to teach. Actually, it says that, um, look at verse 17, it says, and as he taught them, as in this illustration, it was maybe a youth ministry illustration where he's just like, object lesson, turn over tables, like he's teaching through throwing the tables over. And And it makes it sound like this is how he's teaching. He's teaching through like throwing tables over. And it says, as he taught them this lesson of turning over tables, he says, is it not written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus names here the primary intention of the table, the temple, Um, a house of prayer for all This is the primary, this is what the temple was supposed to be. It was a house of prayer for all nations, the place where heaven and earth came together and where people can encounter God. But Jesus says it's not that, it's a den of robbers. Now, a lot of people think that den of robbers means that Jesus was mad because they were buying and selling things in the temple, which is why, you know, churches are not allowed to sell merch or whatever, right? Like, you can't sell merch at the church. It's like, like this. This is this all over again. But it's not that. This is not really what's happening. The, 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 the selling, the buying and the selling in the temple was actually necessary. It's actually a good part of the temple. Imagine if you were coming from hundreds and hundreds of miles away and bringing your family to Jerusalem and you had to sacrifice a spotless animal. Would you bring that spotless animal all the way from home to the temple? Wouldn't it be easy to bring money and then buy the spotless animal at the temple? It was, it was a very needed thing so people can offer to God the things they needed to offer to God. Or a dove. If you couldn't afford that, you would offer a dove. And so this is, what, this is all needed and necessary. So it's, Jesus is not angry at the fact that, that that's happening. This is not, that's that's kind of not the implication here. It's, it's present, but that's not really what's going on. Because robbers don't rob in their den. This is the den of robbers. So if this is the den of robbers. Robbers don't go to their den where they live and rob. The den is where they go to hide out. So this was a hideout for robbers. What does that mean? This is, actually a quote, this is actually a quote from Jeremiah, the prophet in the Old Testament. Jeremiah was told by God to stand at the gate of the house of the Lord, that is the temple, and proclaim this message. He says, Jeremiah 7, 9 through 11, will you still steal and murder and commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name and say, we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Now, the idea is this. The idea is that people, and this happens today. This is where it kind of like turns into us today. Now, the idea is that people can use and have used the ritual of religion and the name of God as a cover-up. For all kinds of selfishness and injustice and complacency, this is uh, the world or those outside the church's biggest complaint of the church: is that church is all about just a cup. They, all of this is religi, the, the religiosity and the cover up of all the injustices that they actually cause. What Jesus is saying, actually, that is a temptation. That's actually what was going on here. This is the t- temptation all the time around ritual and religion. We have to be mindful, this is the temptation around spiritual practices and all sacramental engagement that we think we can live any way we want, ignore the vocation that God has given us to enact justice in the world and forgiveness in the world and life in the world and be a light in the world and just think that we're okay since we go to church or do our quiet time or perform any other religious habit. This is the temptation. This is the thing. We can do this. We can turn um, church into a dinner. A dinner. Basically, um, it's that thing. is when you use God to hide from God. When you use a Bible study to, to really hide from God. Like, I don't really have to. If I, can, if I just read the chapter that I'm supposed to read today and do the prayer and say the prayer and show up to church, I don't really have to do the, the I, don't really, I don't really have to, to sacrificially give, right? I could just do that thing instead. I don't really have to do justice, right? I could just do this. I don't really have to live this way with my, with my, with my romantic life. I could just go to church and do this, right? I, I don't have to do all that stuff. I could just do these other little things and these other little things will compensate for the other, other ways I, I'm acting, not according to the will of God in my life. It's when you use God to hide from God. It's when we use spiritual practice as a cover-up so we, can, we don't ever have to own up to our sin and injustice, and our immorality. Now, if you're having a hard time assessing this, and, or accessing this, rather, and understanding why God finds this so heinous, let me, let me try to come at it another way. You know why Jesus was so moved with compassion by the marginalized and the sick throughout the Gospel of Mark? You know why Jesus was so moved with compassion? He would see people who were sick, marginalized, blind, lame, whatever it was. And he was so moved, it was because they couldn't lie. There was complete transparency and honesty in their lives. Everyone knew that the leper had leprosy. And the leper knew it, and the people knew it. You didn't have leopards walking around going, what leprosy? What do you mean? But you had religious leaders doing that. Everyone knew the blind man was blind. And the blind man wasn't kidding himself. He was fully aware of it and he didn't try to hide the fact that he was blind. See, it's not weakness that is problematic in our relationship with God. What's problematic is denial and lying and the hardening of our hearts in the face of the truth. This is why Jesus is so angry at religious leaders because they don't own up to their own sin. And I'm finding too, to be honest, to be completely honest, as I do more pastoral counseling, as I get to know more people, especially younger folks that didn't grow up in church or have not really been around church, um, or even have been around church that like, I don't have any, they, people ha- have a hard time accessing their sin. Like, I, don't, I don't have sin, like I don't, I was, I've been raised that I'm awesome. And, and in some part that's true, our cultural, our, our cultural like, um, our, our cultural narrative is that everyone, there's no fault with anyone. Everyone's fine. Everyone's great. Actually, actually everyone's, everyone's awesome. And it's really hard to access. And this, is, this becomes another form of religiosity. This is as blind as a religious person saying, I'm perfect. You would see that and you be like, no, you're not. You have so much wrong with you. This is the stuff that Jesus doesn't, I mean, Jesus is just angry about. Is this like pretending? The lepers can't Pretend. Jesus has so much compassion for people who just are like, see, it's, it's going through life thinking, I don't have to do real justice as a disciple of Jesus. It's going through life thinking, I don't really have to do that. I, and, you, and you lie to yourself. You deceive yourself. What does that even mean? I don't, I don't have to be holy. You, you, cannot, you cannot tell me that, that God doesn't, doesn't allow, want me to do X, Y, and Z. I don't have to share the gospel with people. That's proselytizing. That's weird. No one does that anymore. And you, and, you're, and, you, and you lie to yourself thinking, I don't have to do these things. I don't have to love my enemy. Not really. I can, I can read my Bible. I can go to church. I can feel fine about my life. Ronald Roheiser, the spiritual writer, speaks to this when he, in his book, The Holy Longing, is talking about, um, in Mark chapter 3, when Jesus is talking about this, the sin against the Holy Spirit, which is blasphemy and a sin that can't be forgiven, and everyone, you know, a lot of us have, obviously, you have questions about that verse. Like, wait, what's the sin that can't be forgiven? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Well, what's that? Because that sounds gnarly. And Roheiser says, um, he, he says that it has something to do with lying to ourselves. He says this, quote, be careful not to lie, not to distort the truth, because the real danger is that by lying, you begin to distort and, and warp your own hearts. If you lie to yourself long enough, eventually you will lose sight of the truth and believe the lie and become unable any longer to tell the difference between the truth and the lies. What becomes unforgivable about that is not that God does not want to forgive, but that you no longer want to be forgiven. God easily forgives all of your weaknesses and will always forgive anyone who wants to be forgiven, but you can so warp your own conscience that you see God's truth and forgiveness itself as a lie, as Satan, and see your own lie as truth, And forgiveness. That is the only sin that truly puts us outside of God's mercy. Not because God refuses to extend mercy further, but because you can look mercy in the eye and call it a lie. This is a warning against sustained dishonesty and rationalization in our spiritual lives. Now, recovery language has the best language around all this. I'm I'm sure you know. Recovery language says that you are only, you are as sick as your sickest secret, and you will remain sick as long as it remains a secret. You're only as sick as your as sickest secret. In all effective addiction programs, health and sobriety are essentially synonymous with honesty. One program says sobriety is only 10% about alcohol and 90% about honesty. I think Jesus would essentially agree with that assessment, that spiritual health is 90% about honesty. It's about continuing to show up with God and like, I'm not there yet. I know I have all sorts of ways that, that, that need realignment to your will, God. There's all sorts of ways, that, things that you are calling me to and ways that I live and orient my life that I'm, I'm always aligning up to who, who you've called me to be. Now, where does this leave us? I, I wanna like kind of slowly, I hate when, Preachers, I, I do this all the time. End, even though I have like you know five minutes left or whatever. But let's kind of end. But I just want to. I, I want. I don't want. I don't want to lose this. I don't want us to forget this. What does Jesus' hunger teach us about Jesus? Like what? What is this? The hunger. That, what does he? What does Jesus want? I mean, that's a good question to ask. What does Jesus want? His, he's he's hungry. He's angry. He's passionate. What is he? What What is he all riled up about? What does he want? What does he desire? Well, he desires fruit. We know he desires fruit. He desired to walk up to a a fig tree that should at that moment, though it's not the season for figs, was the season for these nodules, he wanted something there and there was nothing there. I mean, this goes, um, I mean, Jesus talks about, uses this organic metaphor quite a lot in his teachings. The most famous one is uh, John 15. Let me just read it to you. Jesus says, uh, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. That's gnarly. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so it'll be even more fruitful. Remain in me, he says, and I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Jesus cares about fruit, the organic results of our lives, as we abide and stay in and close to Jesus. What happens in our life when we stay connected to Christ, close, intimate relationship, the fruit that comes out of that, Jesus is very concerned about. He cares very much about this. So much so that he curses this fig tree and he warns the disciples, if you don't, if you don't bear fruit, you will get cut off. I mean, those are, that's very like black and white, harsh, like hard to deal with that Jesus would be that black and white because we usually detect Jesus as like, you know, it's all good, I love you, whatever. You know, that sort of thing. But, and this is a real, this is serious. Jesus is serious when it comes to this stuff. Okay, but he also desires that we live into our identity. He wants us to live into our identity. And Jesus is very serious about this as well. In Matthew, he says that you are the light of the world, the salt of the earth. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. If you have a light, don't put it under a table. Put it where, where people see it. Like, he He really cares that we live out our vocation, our calling. He's serious about who we are, our identity. And he's serious about this, not because he wants to control you, but because, as C.S. Lewis said, Christianity is a fighting religion. Now, don't think of violent fighting. Think of the kind of fighting Jesus did here, nonviolent fighting. He's fighting against religiosity, but he's being very nonviolent. I don't think a dove was hurt in this. There should be, like, a caption. There was no doves hurt in this this experiment, whatever. Whatever. So Christianity is a fighting religion, nonviolence. Here's why. This is what it means. Here's what he means by that. It thinks God made the world, but it also thinks that great many things have gone wrong with the world that God made and that God insists and insists very loudly on putting them right again. How does God put things right? I mean, from, from the very beginning of the Bible to the end, he's partnering with humanity to bring the world the way he desires. Ultimately, through the, uh, the, the cross and resurrection of Jesus, and through Jesus' second coming, he brings about it ultimately, but he empowers his people to do it here on earth now. So Jesus is serious about our identity. He's serious about us being the church and the world. He's serious about um, this physical place and us physically being in this physical place and being a light to the, to the city. I mean, he's serious about that. Now, this section ends... With um, some see it as a non sequitur, like Jesus ends this whole section about talking about forgiveness. I mean, like It must have been added later because that was really random. Look at Mark 11, 23 to 26. Jesus is explaining the fig tree. He says, have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says this mountain, now that mountain means the temple mount, the, the temple. This is Jesus is talking about justice here. He's like, if anyone says this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea. This is enacting judgment. And, they, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, this is a connection to the temple, temple was about prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And then here it is. There's, people think this is a non sequitur. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. You're like, wait, where would that come from? All of this, and then you end with forgiveness. That's, this seems like a non sequitur, and it's not, though. See, the temple was a place of prayer, but also a place of forgiveness. It's a place where you were made right before God, where the world was made right before God, where, where God was and he dwelled and Israel lived in right relationship with him and would offer sacrifices. And what Jesus is saying here is that now he is the center of that. He is the source of forgiveness. He's the, the very source of that forgiveness is found in him. But not just that, he is the grace that makes forgiveness possible. He's, he's, through our forgiveness of sin, Jesus shares a parable like this, through our forgiveness of sin, when we realize the depth of what Christ has forgiven us, we then use that and go and spread that forgiveness to the world. We become people that are reconcilers in the world. We spread forgiveness. I'll end with a with a, a story about a movie, to just to try to get some get your get your some like flesh around this. I, I saw this movie on the plane a couple of weeks ago, flying to the East Coast, and um, this movie was this movie was beautiful, and um, it was a movie about like the bitterness of unforgiveness, and uh, it centered around a a, a a young mom who was um, who who's a who's alcoholic and addicted to drugs. And and the community that she grew up around was, was this really rigid, religious community that thought because you were raised in the church in a good way, you should never be this way. And it was the most gross way of seeing how people talk about church. And it was unforgiveness, like this community did not want to forgive this mom, and this mom didn't want to forgive this community. And then in, um, in the movie, there was a person that was inserted into the story, that became this like embodiment of grace, this like beautiful embodiment of grace, of whole of like forgiveness over and over again, like literally every single day. And the main character, a woman, didn't know what to do with it. Like literally, didn't know what to do with it until until it, this the act of forgiveness woke her up. Woke her out of her slumber. Woke her out of her addiction. Woke just woke woke her up, woke her up to the world. And it was through this this forgiveness that she, this this woman realized that she um, it, was, it was okay to let 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 it go, to let bitterness go. And I was and I was crying. I feel so bad. The person next to me. I was just I was just like I was so good. And I and I. The end of the movie left me with two things, two, two different thoughts. I literally, like, I wrote, I think I wrote them down. I'm like, these, one, I wish followers of Jesus were making art like this. Maybe they did. Maybe there wasn't. I didn't ever check. I'm like, I, I want followers of Jesus to, to make art like this. It was beautiful. But my second thought was, I, I want to be this, this, the character that this person was, I want the church to be that in the world. And the way the world sees the church was the, the, the characters that were judging and judgmental that's how the, that's how the world sees the church and this this person that came in that was not holding things against her forgiving loving like radical hospitality it was just in, it was beautiful i want i want us, i want the church to be like that in the world i want our church to be like that in the city I don't think that can happen unless we first receive the forgiveness that we have in Christ and then see how much we've been forgiven, how much we've been loved by God, and then are able to then orient our lives not towards bitterness, but living in forgiveness of others. And so I know in a room this size, there are people that are holding on to unforgiveness, bitterness against someone, and it's poisoning your life. And you know it is, but you don't know how to let it go. I mean, I wanna say today, Let's let's pray that, I mean, I really believe God wants to free people today. And there's people in here that are not living into their vocation. There's things that God had specifically, Jesus has specific hungers for your life, specific desires for your life that you even know of that you're not living into for whatever reason. I mean, life could have just happened, just kind of moved on with life. Something could have happened where you went out and tried it and you failed completely. But there's things in this room I know that God has that Jesus himself is desiring for you, like a calling he has for your life. Now there's a general call that we have to be the church in this city, but I think there's specific individual calls that God has in your life. And I, and I hope today those things are dusted off, those things are brought to the surface and given light and air and water so they can grow again. And I, and I pray that forgiveness begins to become, and, and radical hospitality begins to become like what? The church is known for. Would you stand with me as we, as we pray? Would you open your hands as you as you stand in this, um, a posture of openness to God? Lord, we really, um, we can't be your church without the the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, and we can't be people who who go around forgiving without first being forgiven. We don't even know the depth of love until we understand how much you've loved us. And so I pray it would happen and start now, Lord, that we would, um, that the the places of our heart that are hidden from you, where we're hiding, where we're lying, where we use church and religiosity as a cover-up so we can text our parents that we're going to church and we know that it's just a cover-up for things that we really want to do However, that works itself out, Lord. Would, would, today there's 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 be something about like um, hard ground being broken up? Would you this organic metaphor of tilling the ground and watering it and letting air and light come in and come, Holy Spirit? We pray for free, I pray for freedom in this room, freedom. People that just feel so locked in by their own maybe complacency or the overwhelming task before them as a Christian in this world. F- bring freedom. I pray that we'd be, we be light, Lord. Make us light.